From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To solve cold cases of missing and murdered indigenous Coloradans, the state created a new office. We'll meet its first leader. Each tribe has their own rituals to allow our our deceased to go on to our next journey for them. But when they go missing and there's no... It's hard for to get that closure. Then Colorado's Teacher of the Year uses music to help middle schoolers build life skills. And later, meet the reptile rescuer. You know, I'm up first thing making salads. It takes me an hour, hour and a half to make the salads for everybody. I do it, quite frankly, as my passion for the animals and, and the fact that it's not, you know, their fault that people are irresponsible. And an update on a different sort of animal, the reintroduction of wolves. Your old or unwanted car still has value. Donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll help free up some space in your garage or driveway, and you'll help CPR bring the programs you value to listeners across the state. Any make, any condition, we'll take it. Start the safe and easy car donation process and find answers to your donation questions at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. People go missing in indigenous communities at alarming rates. The number of cases involving Native women in particular is 10 times the national average in some parts of the country, according to one study, and that is likely an undercount. Many of these cases remain unsolved, a function both of police that are stretched thin and communities that often lack trust in the system. Colorado is trying to change this with the new Office of Liaison for Missing or Murdered Indigenous Relatives. Aaron Julian is its first director. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. You were recently in Ignacio, Colorado, helping respond to the case of a missing Indigenous woman, Nikki Birch Woodhull. Would you tell us about that case and what it means to you? Basically, I was in a different part of the state. I was at the Ute Mountain Tribal Police uh, meeting with them, doing outreach. Um, I received a message from the grassroots organization called the MMIR Task Force out of Denver. They sent me a, a flyer indicating that this young lady was missing. So after my engagement in Ute Mountain, I proceeded to Southern Ute, uh, meet with the Southern Ute Police Department. National Police Department, and of course the community group and community members, and you basically brought everybody together, gathered information, and provided that information to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and they took over the case, as it was a state jurisdiction, and um, the rest is pretty much what happened. I understand that Birch Woodhull was found dead more than a week after she went missing. The suspect, a man from Ignacio, was arrested and is awaiting charges. Is that unusual in a case like this? We mentioned how many of these are unsolved. Yes, it was very unusual. This is how it played out when I made contact with the local police department, which was the Southern Ute, um, get, gathered information from them, explained to them that we're a new, new agency and we're here to help them and provide whatever resources we can. Then I met with um, CBI investigators from Durango. We all came together, made a determination how we can all help each other. They requested our assistance. 
In and what? Like, give me an example of something you could help with. The, all the resources the state of Colorado has for investigative purposes, the extra investigators, all the analysts that, that are involved in in um, helping solve cases. A- analysts of evidence? Yes, from the CBI. Uh-huh. Stuff that um, local law enforcement doesn't have. Mm-hmm. All this progress all in one day. Um, it's something that is not common. And bringing all those resources and helping bring some um, closure to the family. It's unfortunate what happened, but um, we were able to make that happen in one day. So the arrest followed your visit, to be clear yes. on the timing. What is your understanding of why there are such high numbers of missing uh, and or murdered indigenous people? Um, I'm not sure why. Maybe, I, yeah, I don't have an answer for that. I'm not, because I know it's very high. I know throughout Indian country across the United States, there's lack of resources, there's lack of, of help, and we're always being Native myself. I've seen that communities are underserved all the time. That could be one reason. I'm sure there's many um, facets to it. Do you think it's partly because uh, Indigenous lives have been undervalued historically in this country? Yes, I would say yes. And so that th- this is systemic, I hear you saying. You are a Hikaria Apache. Correct. Um, how closely has this issue of missing persons touched your own circles, Aaron? Um, we have several on our reservation that I was the f- criminal investigator for that reservation. We've had murders. We've had, we've had people going missing. And it happens. You know, inherent in the idea of missing is the lack of closure for families, the wondering where someone is. What have you seen is the effect on people of that wondering, of that lack of closure? Each tribe has their own um, rituals or ceremonies we have to allow our our deceased to go on to our next journey for them. And a lot of times the families don't get to do that because that's part of our, our background, that's part of our history, that's part of our culture. We, we send our, our relatives further with, with blessings and a ceremony, but when they go missing and there's no, it's hard for, to get that closure. So uh, to be clear on what resources you have, what tools you have, do you have investigators in this office or is it the relationship with the CBI, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, that is your main Yeah, it's tool? the relationship we have with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. I know by legislation there was um, some positions that were approved. One was an investigator for this position, but I'm three weeks into this program, so um, we're looking at hiring the individuals, but we're going to have a strong relationship with CBI. Uh huh. Is it that the CBI would not have otherwise been involved, or it's that you make sure they are? I'm pretty for all Native incidents that happen in the state of Colorado from this point um, moving forward. I'm going to be involved in all those cases. I'll be the liaisons between the community, local law enforcement, and other other groups that are, have that interest, and also the direct connection with working with CBI and and trying to provide the best service we can to the families and the victim the victims' families. You see yourself indeed as a liaison. I mean, that is in the name of yes. the role. Your most recent job was chief of police for the Bishop Paiute tribe in California. That's correct. Do you think that there's a lack of trust in law enforcement? Lack of trust from the community? Yeah, from indigenous communities in particular. Yes, there, there, there has been. And um, and law enforcement in, like say, the state of California, 
It's a public law 280 state, which means that the state has criminal jurisdiction in um, native communities. A lot of sheriff's departments that respond to native communities, they have a larger population and they're, they're undermanned. So at times there, there's some um, lack of trust between the community members because they don't have a local law enforcement that actually works with them on a day-to-day basis. So that it's different in the state of California. That that's not the case in Colorado. No, not the case in Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. Here, actually, everybody's been very welcoming, very very helpful. Everywhere I've been, local law enforcement community have been very anxious, and excited that this program's up and running, and that um, I'm doing the best I can to make this program a success. In addition to a sparkling turquoise bolo tie, will you tell me what else is around your neck, Aaron? Oh, sure. It, it is a medallion. A beaded medallion that was given to me by a family that we done work for um, on my reservation, helping bring um, help to the victims, and the family was was more than happy to provide that. So this medallion uh, is perhaps the size of a small plate, and it's got on it an image that has become, I think, increasingly familiar to people, yes. and that is a red handprint. Yes. Uh, it, it invokes perhaps blood. Mm-hmm. and the violence that Native communities face. Uh, it has become an image uh, representing missing and murdered Indigenous women in particular, I think. That's correct. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of some of the unsolved cases you're hoping to look at? Like, do you have you... I know it's early days, but is there a list or, um, you know... Well, actually, yeah, we have... Um, we're working on backlog cases that have been reported to our office going to 2002. So we're trying to get find answers to see what happened during that investigation, if there was an investigation, and what did they do when they were reported. A lot of this is cold cases. Yes. It sounds to me like maybe families are calling and reaching out to you. Yes. That there's some pent-up demand for someone to be heard, do you think? Mm -hmm. And I'm more than happy to, like I said, we take that information, we detail what those cases might be about, and we call the agencies where they were reported, and we start doing the research. When they were reported, when investigations were conducted, if there's DNA involved. Are you, are you meeting resistance from local agencies? I wonder if there is some perception of you meddling and if you have to fight against that. No, actually, um, all the ones that we, we've been making, or I've been making contact with, they've been more than happy to share information. And sometimes cases go missing or they're just forgotten. Do you have an estimate on how many cases? I do not. Okay. I do not. Mm-hmm. Your office will launch a new statewide alert system at the end of the month, the Missing Indigenous Person Alert. Aaron, what is that? Is it like a new type of AMBER alert? Yeah, it's going to be like a new type of AMBER alert. It's in conjunction with the Colorado Bureau of Investigations. Um, basically, the community will report to a local law enforcement agency and... Um, the agency will cross through CBI that they want an alert for an endangered, missing, possibly a native that um, goes missing in their community, and that alert will go statewide and nationwide. And nationwide? Yes. So um, these would come on a phone? Yes. Okay. It's very important that we we take every step to um, bring some resolution to it. Now, would these folks have been captured in an earlier AMBER alert? Like, why do you need a separate system? Um, that's what uh, grassroots and the community members of the Native community and legislation brought it up, which I think is a great idea, and uh, that it brings awareness to the whole state of Colorado. 
So this is also about awareness, mm-hmm. not only of an individual case, but mm-hmm. of the larger trend, I Correct. think I hear you saying. Mm-hmm. You know, the bill creating your office got some pushback from yeah. Governor Jared Polis. Uh, the argument was that Colorado didn't need a whole new office dedicated to this issue. You've laid out reasons why you think it's necessary, but do you want to share a few words on that idea of um Actually, I'm, I have no... I've heard it that there was, but I meet with their office and I talk to them and that everybody across the state has been very open, helpful, and they love the program is, is moving forward. Um, you, had, you've had a good ear in the governor's yeah. office since then? Yes. I have no problems with them. Uh-huh. What does a day look like so far for you? Well, what we've done since is something we're part of legislation as well as training. I was in um, Pueblo, Colorado my first week to roll out a a pilot program called the MMIR training curriculum for basic law enforcement. MMIR and, is yeah, the missing, missing murdered, murdered. I'm sorry, the missing murdered okay. indigenous relatives. We put training protocol for um, the new police officers that are becoming police officers, and it's to bring awareness to cultural sensitivity, cultural understanding, how to properly address the native communities, and better serve them across the state. Once we do get a, approval from the Colorado Post. This curriculum will be introduced at all the academies across the state. Well, give us an example of something you would teach a new officer. Like I've seen in my past in law enforcement, yeah. where law enforcement would just take a native, like like myself, I wear um, traditional medallion, and some natives wear um, like little medicine pouches, mm-hmm. which, which are very sacred. And I've seen in other law enforcement communities, not in this state, but um, where I've been in my life, they just rip that off and, you know, it's very disrespectful. And the individual that they take that from, they become very angry and upset and, it, and it's harder to communicate with them. Those pouches around, uh, worn around the neck are often seen as protective. Yes, that's correct. Um, I, I know an indigenous parent who puts them around her child as a way of, of protecting them. Yes. You know, we spoke with several advocates in Colorado's indigenous communities about this new office. And one question that came up, Aaron, was what is your plan for engaging with communities and families of victims directly? You've talked about, it sounds like maybe fielding calls yeah. thus far, but you want to expound on that? My plan is, as we move forward, is to start doing a lot of um, outreach, prevention, awareness, We'll be setting up booths across the state. I've been traveling a lot, and that's going to be something I'll be doing a lot. And going out meeting the communities. Um, I've already met with uh, the U Mountain, the Southern Ute legislation. They're anxious and excited. I've met a lot of Native grassroots community groups. And it's my, my goal is for all, to meet with all the Native entities throughout the state. And I'm also reaching out to... Um, the surrounding states that have tribes near Colorado, because a lot of people send um, their kids here for school or employment mm-hmm. or just traveling through, that, that we're here and we're here to give them a voice and we're here to help them. Of course, Colorado has two recognized tribes. That's correct. But many indigenous people live off reservations and in cities. Uh, I think most notably as well when you talk about education of Fort Lewis College in Durango, which has a significant indigenous student population. And you you said there legislation. So when you see something that you think could be remedied, is part of your role, do you think, to serve as lobbyist, as voice at the legislature? That's going to be my goal to to help 
give a voice to our native communities and better how we can better serve that community for the state because I think this office I think we're number two in the, in the nation that has an actual office that was dedicated by legislation. Aaron, thank you so much thank for yes, being sir. with us. Thank Appreciate you. it. Aaron Julian is Colorado's first liaison for missing and murdered indigenous relatives. And we'll be right back with a clearer picture of what wolf reintroduction will look like in this state. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Chrisma Hana Kwanzaa? Kwanzaa Hana Chrismaka? Whatever you call a fusion of the holidays, celebrate with us at the 7th Annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. Tickets are selling fast to our live radio stage show featuring music, memories, and laughter. We gather December 15th, Thursday, in a stunning space in downtown Denver. Save your seat. Head to CPR.org slash holiday. Supported by First Western Trust. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As many as 50 gray wolves could be living in Colorado within five years. That's if a draft plan to reintroduce the species here is approved. CPR's climate and environment reporter Sam Brash has been staying on top of developments. Hi, Sam. Hello, Ryan. He's been positively dogged about this. (laughs) Uh, It's been more than two years since Colorado voters approved Prop 114. Uh, As you've reported, that was the first time voters in any state ordered the restoration of an endangered species. Why did it take so long to get to this first wolf reintroduction draft? Right. So Friday we saw Colorado Parks and Wildlife release their draft wolf management plan, which is how they plan to carry out this ballot initiative to both reintroduce and protect gray wolves as they grow into a self-sustaining population here uh, in Colorado and specifically the Western Slope. And that ballot initiative, it was really thick on ambition, but thin on details. It set up just a few main goals. Wolves had to be reintroduced on the Western Slope before 2024. Ranchers had to be fairly compensated for any lost livestock. And everything else really fell to Colorado Parks and Wildlife. We're talking about the biggest questions here. How many wolves? Like where to get them? Where to release them? Uh, Can they be killed if they prey on cattle or decimate deer or elk herds? So the state spent months trying to gather public input and expert opinion to figure out those uh, questions. They set up a couple of working groups to help with that as well. It's been a long, long process, and that's why we're only now getting the final details in this draft plan. There were a lot of blanks to fill in. Well, let's tackle a few of the questions raised. Where will the wolves come from, and where will they go once they're here? You said the western slope. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife, their preference is to capture wolves in Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming. These are the places where wolves, the population has rebounded after federally led reintroduction campaigns around Yellowstone and central Idaho in the 1990s. Those states have really turned against those wolf populations and passed policies to reduce their numbers. And they're also, those wolves are accustomed to hunting the same kind of elk and living in the same kind of mountain environments that we have here in Colorado. So that's their preference for where to get them. Uh, We'll see if they can pull that off. And then it says 30 to 50 wolves should be reintroduced in the next three to five years. Uh, And they want to do that in something they've called the donut hole. They've established a buffer zone 60 miles from each state border on the western slope and that includes you know Vail, Montrose, Gunnison, uh, Glenwood Springs are kind of like 
the four rough corners of that area. And they want to reintroduce wolves in the northern section of that, according to this draft plan, uh, a year from now about, like next winter. And so that means we'll have wolves released somewhere on the I-70 corridor between Vail and Glenwood Springs. I mean, those are some of the most populated mountain areas. It is. And that's what makes this such a fascinating and, you know, risky experiment. Um, You know, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, when they were putting together this plan, they had a scientist put together this big, fascinating study that looked at both the best habitats for wolves and where people voted for wolf reintroduction. Mm. And they're trying to put wolves around people who might tolerate their presence. Is there a plan to track them? Yes. Uh, all these wolves, uh, at least the ones that are reduced, uh, reintroduced initially, will be wearing GPS location collars, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife should be able to track them around the state. Now, the idea here, obviously, is that these wolves breed and, you know, wolf puppies are not born with GPS tracking collars, I found out, you know. Um, (laughs) So that raises the question of uh, how hard are they going to work to recapture these wolves, attach more tracking collars, plus these things, you know, battery life isn't forever. Mm. So it, it becomes a harder and harder proposition to keep track of all the wolves going into the future. Colorado ranchers have consistently fought this reintroduction. How are they react, uh, reacting to this draft that came out Friday soon? I spoke to the Colorado Cattlemen's Association. Their priority this whole time is that the state doesn't just pay for livestock lost to wolves. They also pay for what are called indirect losses of ranching near wolves. There's a lot of studies that suggest that wolves, uh, sorry, cows might, you know, gain less weight or have reduced uh, birth rates if they are living near predators all the time. So they want additional compensation if they're having to do that. Uh, The draft plan does that under this proposal. If an investigation suggests wolves killed a sheep or a calf, the livestock owner can claim five times its value if they've taken precautionary measures to keep wolves away from their property and and live with them peacefully they can uh, get up to seven times the market value. Seven times, okay. Yeah. We, we know the state plans to release 30 to 50 wolves to start, but um, does the plan identify how many the state wants in the long run? I mean, you talked about the fact that they'll, they'll breed, you know? It does, and it does this in the way of talking about how wolves are protected under state law. Right now, Colorado considers wolves to be an endangered species. That means it's not only illegal to hunt them, but often illegal to handle them, haze them, do all kinds of things like that. Colorado could loosen these restrictions as the wolf population grows. It could downgrade their status to threaten if they uh, count more than 50 wolves 40 years in a row. And if the state counts more than 200 wolves in a single year, it could consider uh, recovery classifying them as a game species, which could open the door to an organized wolf hunt. Wolf hunt. Uh, Before we go, how are environmentalists reacting? I understand it's not a monolith here. Absolutely not. There are sort of two buckets of environmental groups on this. There are environmental groups like Wild Earth Guardians who've been very critical of the state's plans this whole time and feel that Colorado is not organizing our wolf reintroduction plan to really sustain the species for the long run. So back to that number, 200 wolves, they would much rather have the target be something like 750 wolves. And they want that spread out over the whole state, not just like concentrated in a little pocket. In of that the state. donut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And there are some environmentalists who are pleased, I suppose. There, there are. There are many environmental groups who sat on some of these working groups that advised the plan. And, you know, they're really looking at those states we talked about earlier, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, where wolf reintroduction, you know, spurred this huge backlash from conservative state governments. They don't want to see that happen in Colorado. And they think by working with hunters, working with ranchers up front, having these generous compensation packages, there could be a better chance for wolves in the long run. This is wolf management. It's also people management. Absolutely. And that's everyone I talk to on this says the same thing. You know, it's really not about biology. It's about sociology. Colorado Parks and Wildlife taking public comment on this plan through February. Thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. That's Sam Brash from our climate and environment team talking about the first draft of this plan to reintroduce, reintroduce wolves to Colorado following a ballot initiative voters approved two years ago. And Colorado Matters continues in this next half hour with a saxophone, a clarinet, and Colorado's new Teacher of the Year. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado lights up as a winter wonderland this time of year. Communities across the state are celebrating with festive parades, tree lightings, and decorative displays to drive away the winter dark. I'm CPR arts reporter Eden Lane. Come to CPR.org for our growing list of places to go and take in the sights and sounds of the holidays, and lists of nutcracker performances and holiday markets around Colorado, all at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Now, Colorado's new Teacher of the Year. For Jimmy Lee Day II, music education goes far beyond playing an instrument. Day is band director at East Middle School in Aurora, where he's taught for about five years. We stopped by his classroom recently as his eighth grade advanced band students practiced for their winter concert. Eighth grader Abimael Reyes plays saxophone. It's actually an honor since I've never had a teacher of the year be my teacher. He can be strict about it sometimes, but I know he's just pushing us to do our best. And for that, I thank him. Day students say he doesn't just teach them to be a band. It's been an opportunity to grow and perform better, not only in music, but also in life. He teaches you life skills, teaches you discipline, teaches you how to become more of an adult, helps you transition into adulthood like not many other teachers do. That's Malachi Kitchen, eighth grade clarinetist. His classmate, Tanya Lopez, agrees Day has had a big impact on their lives. Being a student for Mr. Day is really... It's an honor because he really helps us grow mentally and with music he's taught me a lot of uh, skills and notes that I probably wouldn't be able to figure out on my own and he's, um, he's a really good teacher. And this good teacher is in our studio now. Mr. Day, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm glad you could be with us. Your introduction to music began when you were a kid in Detroit in the 80s. I understand you heard a marching band and got hooked. Tell us about that feeling. Oh, man, I I can remember uh, 
I just heard this booming sound and it got louder and it was getting louder. And I'm like, what is that? And I see this band just coming down our side street because our house was on the corner. And so I saw this band just, it was McKenzie High School Marching Band. Okay. And they were the band to be back in them days. And so they was marching. I mean, I mean, just had the whole street rumbling. And it hooked me. I, I was just hooked after that. I was like, I got to do this. I don't know how I got to get into this, but I got to do this. Was this a parade? Yes, it was some kind of parade. Uh-huh. Yeah, some kind of parade. Yeah. So did you gravitate toward one instrument at that point? Um. As I guess any uh, uh, young kid, first thing I hear, drums. So it's like, I want to play drums. <laughs> Although that's not my instrument, but that's the first instrument I was attracted to was drums. Was drums. Yeah. Uh, you didn't always attend after-school band practice later on because you didn't have a ride home until one of your teachers stepped up. What's that story? Yes. Yeah, so I was at Ann Arbor Trail Middle School, and... Um, um, it was a school halfway across the city because, you know, my mother wanted the best for me. And so, you know, and she just felt that the neighborhood school I was going to at the time just wasn't going to do it for me. And so knowing that uh, it was something better out there and knowing that they had an established uh, marching band mm-hmm. program, you know, she did what she had to do to get me into that school. And so being in that school, you know, marching band practice was after school and so many times I wasn't able to make it and so of course if you can't make the band practice then you can't be in the performances and you know that was kind of disappointing because I was one of the few sixth graders who made the band the band was full of seventh and eighth graders and so sixth grade you know if you were asked to be in a band in sixth grade that was a, a huge honor. big deal yeah. yeah big deal and so for me to not be able to just you know, take advantage of that and be a part of it was disappointing. And my band director, and I don't know how it happened, but, you know, I know my mom ended up, I remember my mom telling me like, yeah, Miss Knox said she will agree to take you home because I guess she was just talking to her about it. And she said, yeah, she's going to take you home on the days that we can't pick you up. And so, yeah, you know, Miss Knox would, would, you know, take me home after band practice. And, you know, like I've always said, she saw me as a good investment in her program huh. so she invested in me you know and I think that's the same thing that I see when I'm kind of in those shoes too, helping my students does she know how much she means to you I think she does I think I tell her a lot <laughs> oh good yeah okay. you know you're still in communication yeah then? so she's she's my Facebook friend um you know I've been sending her articles and all that stuff so you know hopefully she's been getting them um, but yeah, but I've I've told her I've told her many times how appreciative I was of her. Um, did the music follow you to Tennessee State University where you did your undergrad? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. As a matter of fact, I went to Tennessee State University on a band scholarship, and so uh, I marched in the band um, from '99 to 2002, and then um, I marched one more year, my fifth year in '04. And Weren't you going to study architecture, though? <laughs> That's a story to tell. <laughs> yes, I went in as an architect major. And it turns out you got to be good in math. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so that first semester, that first semester kicked my butt. I said, you know what? Architecture is not the way. It is not the way. And so, um, you know, in between, 
you know, majors trying to find some. I messed around and became a fashion merchandising major. I just, wow. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. I would say because I was a kid who liked to draw gym shoes. And so I figured, well, you know, I'm, you know, and I, I drew gym shoes because those are the gym shoes I wanted and I knew I couldn't get them because my mom wasn't going to buy them for me. So I was just drawing. It was an aspirational yeah. art for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. So, and it, you returned to music, which your mom, I understand, had predicted. Yeah. She uh-huh. told me all the time, why don't you just be a music major? Mm. Like, this is something you're good at. But thankfully, the associate band director convinced me to finally, in my third year at Tennessee State, to become a music major. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are meeting the 2023 Teacher of the Year. That's Jimmy Lee Day II, band and orchestra director at East Middle School in Aurora. He's just been named uh, Teacher of the Year and joins us. What made you want to teach? Well, when I became a music major, there was... um, practicums that we had to participate in and so I was able to go to other schools and observe their band directors or their music teachers teach the class take notes on it come Mm -hmm. back and discuss it with the professor and with the class you know what I saw and all these things and so in those practicums I was fortunate to have some band directors who allowed me to like work with their students like you know small groups or one-on-one and through that through my interaction with those students, that sparked that passion for teaching, you know, and it's I, I saw that that was something that I really liked doing. What about teaching students who are not necessarily musically inclined and who don't see this as a career path? In other words, you've got to make room, right, for both the students that w- want to follow in your footsteps and the ones for whom maybe music will be on the side, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you negotiate that? Because I was a kid uh-huh. who kind of felt a little forced to play an instrument. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad my parents insisted, but you you must have to contend with that. Oh, it's like being a car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> how so? You have to sell it. Uh-huh. You have to sell it because every student that I teach, every student that is put in front of me, did not pick band yeah. at all. It might be a very, very small percentage of students who pick band coming in as a beginner. Now, the students who return that next year, yeah, they put band back on their schedule. You know, I might kind of strong arm a little bit. (laughs) You're going to be in band next year. But initially starting out, no, those students that are put in front of me are there because of just scheduling. Okay. Sell me on the trumpet. The trumpet was the instrument that I had to take. I was dis- mm. I was really grossed out by the spit. <laughs> I was really grossed out. How would you sell a student on the trumpet? What would it sound like? Um, well, I would tell them that is one of the most important instruments in the band. That is the one who carry the main part or the melody. So you're going to be heard regardless. Oh. You know, so all my trumpet players are full of you know, they're very courageous, you know, and in some cases they could be arrogant, which is okay if you can play your instrument. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, I tell them, I, that's, I mean, that's just basically why I just keep it real simple. You know, y'all are the important, uh, y'all are the voice of the band, basically. You all, you, you all speak, you all say the melody, you all, you know, you know. You have a real voice. Yeah, basically. It. 
As we heard from some of your students, discipline is a big part of your approach. Mm. How does that fit in? Well, um, without discipline, there's no learning. Um, and when I mean discipline, I mean like everything structured. How you come into the classroom, what you do as soon as you get into the classroom. What does it look like to enter your classroom? So my students, <clears throat> when they enter my classroom, it depends on who it is, beginner or advanced, but they kind of do the same thing. With my beginners, they know they have to line up outside before they come in. Hmm. Make sure they get their minds right. When they come in, I fist bump every one of them, greet them. Hey, what's up? How you doing? Bam, bam, bam. They go in. They sit down. They put their backpacks on the back of the seat. I take attendance. We go into the lesson. And they know after that, there's a procedure they have to do when they get their instruments, how to get to their seat, how to get from their seat. When they clean their mouthpieces, how to get to the cleaning station, how to get back to their seat, how to assemble an instrument, how to disassemble an instrument. You know, what I mean when I tell them rest position, what that's about. When we go to plan position, what that's about. Everything is is procedures and routines until even the exit procedure. <laughs> so, Well, it's also precise, and it occurs to me that in band, especially marching band, precision is so important. Mm -hmm. In just the last few seconds, what do you hope to do with this honor, being Colorado's Teacher of the Year? I, you know, I would just hope to put music education on this platform and just show that how the importance of music education is not just about us learning notes and learning instrument. It is way deeper than that. It's about learning life skills. It's about learning how to, um, you know, work with each other, you know, how to have, you know, build good work ethic. And it's just what it can do for the brain. I mean, that by itself is a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to highlight that, that is what I hope I can do uh, with having this honor. I wish we had more time to talk. It's really been a pleasure, Jimmy. Thank you. Likewise. Jimmy Day II is band and orchestra director at East Middle School in Aurora. He is also Colorado's Teacher of the Year for 2023. Still to come, the reptile rescuer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This time of year, people often give living things as gifts. But Nico Novelli will caution you, especially when it comes to reptiles. So that's Butthead. He's a sulcata tortoise. They can live upwards of 150 years in the wild. Novelli runs a reptile rescue from his house in a canyon in the Boulder County foothills. When you walk in the front door and look down towards the basement, you'll probably see Butthead, the giant tortoise, wandering around. They will get over 120, 150 pounds. 
This is the only animal I've ever owned that I actually could say I dislike. <laughs> he is a huge pain. You can see the big dents in the side of my dryer. That's from the tortoises. This door isn't even here anymore. They smashed it. When all of my sulcata tortoises are full grown, it will cost me more to feed them than I pay for my house. Novelli's rescue is called Canyon Critters. Besides the room with the meandering tortoises, there's a python room with 12 pythons. In a separate building, he has caimans, a type of gator. One of them, Carmen, has lived with him for more than a decade. Demand for Novelli's services is up, as he says more people buy reptile pets they realize they can't take care of. He estimates there are more than 100 stores selling reptiles in Colorado, but only a small handful of rescues. I asked him to tell me more about what kinds of animals and what kind of volume he's dealing with. This is the first year I've actually started to keep track not only of the quantity of animals, but the variety of animals. I don't know how, if you want me to go down the whole list, but 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 different species of animals I've been asked to take in this so far this year. Oh my goodness, and what are a few of them? A multitude of different turtles, which is the number uh, one request I get. It's actually the third most surrendered animals after cats and dogs. Oh. Yeah, multitude of uh, pythons, different kinds of snakes, a lot of lizards some of which are rather large, like the tegu and the monitors. Most common lizard, very popular pet because they're very social, is the bearded dragon. A lot of celebrities have posted pictures with their bearded dragons. They are great pets, but a lot of people, when they buy them, don't realize that they are going to live up to their upper teens, low 20s, and they're about $80, $90 to care for properly a month. So it's a big undertaking That's my next question, which is the reason that these animals are being surrendered. So cost is part of it. What else don't people expect? Number one would probably be the kids lost interest. I don't have kids, but I know (laughs) from me and my brothers being kids that, you know, they're not playing with their Christmas presents by Valentine's Day. And as I say in my educational programs, if they lose interest in a video game or a bicycle, it can sit in the corner till the cows come home, but you lose interest in an animal, it still needs daily care, it still needs feeding, it still needs clean water. And this time of year, people giving animals as presents, I highly, highly discourage ever giving somebody an animal as a pet. You're assuming that they want quite a bit of responsibility, not only financial, but if you go on vacation for the holidays and you got a cat or a dog, you can board them at a multitude of places. Mm-hmm. If you have something like a bearded dragon, there's not a whole lot of places that are going to board. And getting your neighbor kid to come over and pour some dog food in a bowl and take them for a walk is one thing. Getting them to make a fresh salad with fruits and vegetables and put live crickets in the cage, change the water daily is a bit more of an undertaking and it's not easy to get somebody. So a lot of people realize that it's a problem on this vacation. It's going to continue to be problems on future vacations. Mm-hmm. So they just say, we, this isn't for our lifestyle. You know, I appreciate this idea of not springing a pet on someone, that that should be a discussion that happens ahead of time out of respect for the animal and, frankly, for your partner or your family member, I guess, as well. Well, if Um, it's your kid, it's one thing. If you're getting it for a friend or, you know, grandparents get it for their grandkids, I see that a lot at my parties. uh And it's very unfortunate how few people do little to no research before they get these animals. It's one of the reasons I I cringe every time the reptile show comes into town. 
about three, four months later, I start to get calls from people that went to the reptile show with their kid. Their kid pestered them enough that they broke down and ended up buying something spontaneously at the reptile show. They get home, look it up. Now they find out what they got is expensive. It's hard to take care of. It's going to need a lot of space. And then they want to give it up. Talk to me about the volume of surrenders now compared to the past, will you? This year so far, I've had somewhere around 112 uh, rescue requests. I can't take them all in. I take in mainly like the one, the last one I took in, which was last Wednesday, was a caiman, uh, which is a type of alligator. Yeah. A big problem here. Um, we got a multitude of, in fact, this one came from another reptile chain that I didn't know was selling the gators as well. I use the term gators because once again, most people aren't familiar with a caiman. The fact that they're selling them in the pet stores is, in my opinion, completely inappropriate. And then like this one that I just rescued last Wednesday, the girl went in, couldn't believe they were selling, you know, gators, surprised that she was able to buy it. So decided that because she could, she would, and quickly realized that this is not something that's easily handled. It, it bites a lot. I mean, even the little ones, you know, have very sharp teeth and can cause quite a bit of damage. And then the, one of the things that irritates me as a rescue and somebody that, you know, has spent its lot, basically my life, or at least my adult life caring for these animals, is the misinformation that people get from the pet stores. Give me an example of that. If you go in and, and look at a caiman and say, oh, you know, how big is it going to get? They'll tell you two, three feet when they get five, six feet. One I've heard quite a bit lately is them telling people that the animals eat less food than they actually eat to make them sound more affordable. Well, and that, that I mean, leads me to a question about surrenders. So you can only take in so many. As you say, mm -hmm. the capacity is limited for others to take them in. Do you find then that people abandon these animals in uh, not good places? Oh, they release them. Well, there was just last September where somebody let their Cayman gator go in Sloan Lake. They found a gator. I came in. I get parks and open space and uh, Department of Wildlife finding things on trails and bringing them to me. I wouldn't say regularly, but it's happened more than enough times. People sending me pictures. Oh, I saw this on the trail. What is it? I've never seen one in Colorado. And it's like, it's a bearded dragon. That's a desert lizard from Australia. It shouldn't be in the wild. I go over this in my educational programs regularly because People don't realize letting your pet loose is animal abandonment, animal cruelty, and animal neglect. But if it's out from Colorado, it's also an invasive species. So what do you do with the animals you take in? Do you find stable families for them? I try to find homes for them. Unfortunately, my rescue request rate is more than 10 times more than what I get for adoption requests. And a lot of times when people call me to adopt, once I go over... The true facts of what it takes to take care of these animals, a lot of people change their minds. Well, I don't think I've ever done a Boy Scout meeting where at least one, if not multiple parents come up to me afterwards and thank me for telling them the truth and saying, you just saved me from making a big mistake hmm. because they didn't realize they're about to take on an animal that they had to care for for 20 years and $90 a month. How did you get into this, Nico? Well, I've, I've had reptiles my whole life. My mom and my grandmother actually had snakes before I did. When I'm in public schools, libraries, city festivals, girls are always way braver and always up front. <laughs> so back to your question, how I got into this. Professionally, I started actually training animals for movies. The rescue started when I was working for animal control in L.A. County. The shelter I was working at, when we got reptiles in, we'd keep them for anywhere from five to ten days, and then they'd be euthanized. 
so I started taking them home. And then that <laughs> quickly became a zoo. And then I started Canyon Critters and my programs in order to fund the rescue. I'm 100% uh-huh. self-funded. Uh-huh. I'm funded through my educational programs and my parties. I do have another company, my maintenance company. That's how I pay my bills. In fact, ever since COVID, I've had to spend more and more of the money from my other company to take care of the animals. Well, and that was uh, my question about why you do this at a loss, frankly, economically, and at you know major expense in terms of your time and energy. It's early mornings. You know, I'm up first thing making salads. It takes me an hour, hour and a half to make the salads for everybody go down, distribute salads, pick up old food, pick up any messes made overnight. I do it, quite frankly, is my passion for the animals and and the fact that it's not, you know, their fault that people are irresponsible. I mean, I have animals that I try to find homes for, but I most definitely have animals that will be with me their whole lives. About a third of the animals I get in are sick or injured. My vet bills every year are thousands and thousands of dollars, and that's with a very generous discount that I get from my herpetologist. Will you leave us with a reptile you feel a particular affection for? I always get asked which one's your favorite. Oh, I didn't um, say favorite because <laughs> as, as an animal lover, I think that would be a terrible thing to ask. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I, I realized which one was my favorite when it passed away, oh. uh, which was one of my iguanas. This one in particular hit me harder than I expected. What was this iguana's name? Lo, which stands for little one. Although when it passed away, it was over five feet. (laughs) But when I rescued it, it was the littlest iguana at the time in the rescue. So I called it Little One. Nico, thank you for spending time with us. I appreciate you uh, giving this information. And uh, just to summarize why I I wanted to do this is I'm hoping that somebody in state government can hear this and do something about the fact that we're selling gators in particular, but even anacondas and these large snakes that aren't even legal in most cities. We just shouldn't be selling them to the general public. Little one, little love, little hands, look how they hold the world. Oh, stay a while, little smile, little eyes, soon they will know the world. But there's no rushing, getting older, no use in wishing to be young. Live every part of it, you're at the heart of it, little one. Nico Novelli runs Canyon Critters, a reptile rescue in Boulder County. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Matthew Bloom and Vignesh Ramachandran. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.
rushing, get.